Hey everybody, if you need a Bible, raise your hand and the, the guys are going to pass out some Bibles to you and you're going to need those today when you get to the Bible. If you don't have one, it's yours to keep. Keep your hands up nice and high for a little bit. Um, being first Sunday, it takes a little bit longer to get through. When you get your Bible, turn to Leviticus chapter 23. I'm serious. When you get your Bible, turn to Leviticus <laughs> chapter 23. And everyone's going, oh, no, it's first Sunday where Leviticus is. Trust me, today's going to be about Jesus. Is that good? You guys want to talk about Jesus? Yeah, but we're going to talk about it out of Leviticus 23. So everybody, anybody else need a Bible? Anybody else need a Bible? I think we, there's a couple more over here. All right, good. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today because you have created today and you've created all of us, every good thing in our presence, the food, the people, the air, the trees, everything that's good is from you. And we give you thanks. We give you glory. We've already worshiped you, Lord Jesus, through song. And now we want to worship you through teaching. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, my name is Steve Marshman. As Ryan said, I'm one of your 26 West elders, and this is summer 2019. So this is a bunch of one-off sermons all summer long, and I'm really excited to be here to share something that's been on my heart for a while. But obviously, this was the week our nation celebrated the 4th of July. And for many of you, myself included, you say 4th of July, I think fireworks, barbecue, balloons, watermelon, you know, all the good stuff. And uh, my three grandkids got to be in that little neighborhood parade. And I'll tell you what, it was absolutely epic because there was a fire truck. And my two-year-old grandson got to sit in a fire truck. Best day ever. I mean, lights, sirens, the whole bit. And he has no idea what the 4th of July is actually about. But in addition to the fireworks and the balloons and all that stuff, Fourth of July is meant to remember something, right? That's what a holiday is actually for, is to commemorate something and to remind us of the Declaration of Independence. And it's interesting to me, if you've ever lived in a foreign country, like my wife and uh, Vicky and I have, when you go to a foreign country, if you're not just there on vacation, if you live there for a whole year, you find out a lot about that country just from their holidays. Because, surprise, other countries don't have a 4th of July holiday, right? <laughs> but uh, we lived in Germany for three years, and we were there when the Berlin Wall came down, and they actually created a new holiday just to, to commemorate that. It's called the Day of German Unity, when East Germany and West Germany came together. And we're going to kind of jump off on that idea of learning about another nation by studying their holidays. And we're going to do that today by learning about ancient Israel and their holidays. Or in the Bible, they're called festivals or feasts. And how God appointed them. And taken together, what we're going to find out, amazingly, is all these festivals actually point to Jesus. And that's, that's what we're going to do today at a Leviticus uh, 23. Now, a couple side notes, two side notes, because there's seven festivals so we're going to have to go through them pretty quickly. There actually are two more festivals that aren't mentioned in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And we're not going to cover those, but just for completeness, I'm going to mention them. One of them is called the Feast of Dedication, and now it's called Hanukkah. And we're not going to talk about that one today. And the other one is Feast of Purim. It's spelled P-U-R-I-M, but it's pronounced Purim, the Feast of Purim. And that comm commemorates the story of Esther. So put those aside. Those are for another day. But today we're going to talk about the seven that are in the Torah. And also another side note, just to keep you, you know, understanding what's going on. 
This is ancient Israel when there was still a temple. The, the holidays and celebrations in current political nation of Israel was formed in 1948. They're different. They're a little bit different. So, somewhat the same, but a little bit different. So are you ready? If you need more coffee, now's the time. And I will not be upset if you go. We are going to go fast. It's going to be a high-level overview. We thought about doing this in seven weeks. But if we did seven weeks in Leviticus 23, I think I'd be fired. So we're going to do it in one day. So we're going to do it a little bit faster. And I actually think there's a benefit of looking at all seven festivals in one teaching because we're going to paint this hopefully beautiful picture, like a time-lapse photography of a, of a rose just opening up. And, and you're going to just see Jesus pop out everywhere. So Leviticus 23, I'll put the first two verses on the slide. We're not going to go verse by verse because we just don't have time. But the first two verses set up what we're going to talk about. Leviticus 23, verse 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed festivals, the appointed festivals of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. And then in verse 3, um, it talks about the Sabbath. And in verse 4, all of the festivals are listed. And we'll put those up on the slide. On the slide. And notice from that introduction that these are appointed by God. God Almighty himself came up with the idea of these festivals. This wasn't a, a, bun a bunch of the priests coming up. This is God Almighty who appointed these festivals and their sacred uh, assemblies. And I'm the type of person, I don't mind if you want to pull out your phone and take a s snapshot of that. It won't bother me at all. I don't think it's rude at all because this is the uh, outline we're going to use for the day. We're going to go through all seven of these festivals. And I said all of these point to Jesus. And you might be going, how do you know that? Well, a couple quotes out of the New Testament. Paul says these, speaking of the Torah, these are a shadow of things to come. The reality is found in Christ. The author of the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. And of course, Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 5 says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. So that's what today is about. How do these festivals foreshadow Jesus? And the question we're going to ask as we walk quickly through all seven is, what are the seven festivals about? Because I'm guessing you, like me, many, a few years ago, I didn't know what all these festivals were about. But what are they about and how do they foreshadow Jesus? So, you ready to go? Number one, Passover. Festival number one is Passover. This is the easiest one, and that's one of the reasons I decided to do this today is because we start off with an easy one. Most of us are familiar with the story of Passover. It's a meal that commemorates the Israelites' deliverance out of slavery uh, in, in Egypt. And if you remember the story, there was nine plagues that came, and God was trying to get Pharaoh to release the Israelites, and, and he just won and he won it and won it. And then the tenth plague was announced, and it's, it's pretty brutal that the firstborn son was going to be killed unless you took the blood of a lamb or a young goat and put the blood of a lamb across your doorpost. And then when the plague came, it would pass over those homes, hence the name Passover. So how does Passover foreshadow Jesus? Well, again, this one's pretty easy because most of us know the story of the Last Supper. And at the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples were celebrating the Passover meal together. And the foreshadowing is actually crystal clear because Jesus is our perfect Passover lamb. He is the one that came and protected us 
from death and destruction. He is the Lamb of God who redeems us out of slavery. Not slavery from Egypt, but slavery from sin. So today we're free from bondage to sin and, and we're slaves to righteousness. And we celebrate the Lord's uh, Supper, communion, every week. And we're going to do that again today, for sure, for sure. So this one actually gets us started down the road. Going, okay, maybe, maybe Leviticus 23 will work for me today. By the way, I haven't mentioned it, but one of the things to think about is these festivals were created about 1,500 years before Jesus. And they were celebrated year after year after year. And Jesus himself, as a faithful Jewish male, he would have celebrated every one of these festivals year after year, all the way to the time he went to be the Lord. Well, the second festival is the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And this festival begins the day after Passover, and it lasts for a whole week. For seven days, the Israelites were to eat bread without yeast or, or leaven. And, and I'm no baker, so I looked it up. I thought leaven or yeast was, was a bacteria, but it's worse. It's actually fungus. It's a microscopic fungus that's used to make bread rise. And for the whole week, the Israelites would eat something called matzah. It's made with just bread and flour. And in, in the Bible, we know from other passages that leaven or yeast is a symbol of sin. Jesus said, be careful, be on your guard against the yeast, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. And that's in uh, Matthew chapter 16. So how does the festival of unleavened bread foreshadow Jesus? I think there are two different things that are actually going on at the same time here. The first one is that Jesus is the only sinless human to ever live. Only one that's sinless. And secondly, he's the bread of life. When it comes to sin, the Bible says Jesus had no sin, and you and I, we have sin. And, and 1 John 1.8 says that if we don't acknowledge our sin, the truth is not in us. But Jesus can truly claim that he is without sin. And then on the bread of life bit, John chapter 6 records Jesus' words, and they're pretty astounding to the people listening. This is what he says, I am, Jesus speaking, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for you the life of the world. And of course, when the Jews heard that, they went, what? This guy's talking about cannibalism, that's freaky. But it, they didn't get that it's a giant metaphor. And the reason why Jesus went to this metaphor is because he was able to do that as the sinless person. Because he was sinless, he could conquer death. He could conquer the grave. As we said, unlike Jesus, we sin. And Paul tells us that the wages of our sin is death. We earn death. We deserve death. But Jesus didn't deserve death. He took on death voluntarily. And Jesus is life. He freely gave himself up for us. So the festival of unleavened bread is this gigantic metaphor foreshadowing the work of the cross. Just as the Jews ate sinless bread, we eat sinless bread. Jesus Christ, the living bread. And his nourishment that we get is actually eternal life itself. Is that pretty cool? I mean, that's amazing. And we're going to move on to one that I think is even more cool. It's the third one, the first festival of first fruits. And this is one that you probably don't know much about. But on the day of first fruits, the Israelites offered the first ripe sheaf, which is like a bundle of grain to the Lord, and it dedicated the entire harvest to him. 
Now, you need to stick with me here a little bit because this is a little bit confusing. I don't want you to get confused. The day of first fruits occurs during the week of unleavened bread. And hopefully there's a slide up here that's going to outline this. Passover was on the 14th day of the first month. And the first month in the Torah is, is, is the month of Aviv. And then later on after the exile, it gets changed. The name's changed to Nissan, Nissan or Nissan, not Nissan, that's the car, Nissan. Uh, uh, and our slides are having issues. By the way, our slide, slide people are really, really awesome. The computer that they use is not really, really awesome. So it hangs up all the time, just like mine at home. And uh, I hit mine and it, oh, it's, uh, it's coming. There we go. Yay. All right. All right. So Passover is on the 14th, 14th day of the first month of Eve. And then unleavened bread is a week long from the 15th through the 21st. And first fruits is on one day, the 16th day of Aviv, the first month. Now we need to remember this about the Jewish days. They began at sunset, unlike our days. They, they begin at sunset. So what happens here is as we count these days and when Jesus died on the cross, the, the festival of first fruits was on what day? The third day, Resurrection Sunday. So how does this foreshadow Jesus? On the Sunday morning when Jesus was, was, rose from the dead and the tomb was empty, on that Sunday morning, a priest waved a sheaf before the Lord and threw some of the grain on a fire to offer it as a sacrifice. And here's the pretty cool part. Here's what Leviticus 23 verse 11 says. The priest is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so it will be accepted on your behalf. Well, Jesus is resurrected and he goes to the Father and the Father accepts him on our behalf. He is the first fruit offering for the kingdom of heaven. And because of Jesus' resurrection, you and I in the age to come, at the end of all time, when Jesus comes back, we too will be resurrected. And if we believe in Jesus, we'll be accepted by the Father because of the first fruit offering, namely Jesus. And I don't know about you, but that just gets me excited. It's just amazing that these things are so tied together and speaking about Jesus. So these first three festivals, if we take them together and look at them as almost a package, and sometimes Jewish people today will refer to them all together as Passover week. There's actually three separate festivals listed in Leviticus 23, but they come so close together, they're, they're grouped together. But we could, we could summarize it by saying this, Jesus is the perfect lamb of God, sinless bread of life who died and rose again. And we get that out of these wonderful festivals. Well, moving on to the fourth festival, which is the festival of weeks. And again, I'm a couple times today, I'm going to say, don't get confused by this. I mean, whenever I say that, by the way, that means I was confused by this. So I don't want you to be confused by this. So how long is the festival of weeks? One day. Like, come on, you know, this just doesn't make sense. But here's why. It's, uh, uh, in the Bible, what happens is, is God tells the Israelites to count off 50 days from the day of first fruits and to present an offering to the Lord. And Pentecost is what we know this as today. Pentecost is a New Testament Greek word and it, and it means 50th. And the reason it's called the festival of weeks, even though it's celebrated on one day, is it, become, it comes weeks after first fruits. That's where that comes from. 
Now, before we, we keep diving into this a little bit, I think it's helpful, I hope it's helpful, since most of us aren't farmers, to look at the agrarian culture in Israel. The harvest back in the first fruits, you know, on Resurrection Sunday, that harvest was barley. In Israel, barley only takes about eight inches of rain to grow, and that gets harvested first. And then weeks later, about seven weeks later, uh, the wheat harvest is ready to come in. And here's where I used to be confused all the time about this first fruit thing. When there's a grain offering and there's a festival of first fruits, the barley, uh, the barley harvest, that's talking about uh, the, the third day of the week of Passover. There's also, here's the confusing part, a first fruits offering at the festival of weeks. But don't confuse that first fruits with the festival of first fruits. So there's a first offering out of the barley, and then there's a first offering out of the wheat harvest. And you'll see that in just a second. And because of that confusion, every once in a while when you read things about Pentecost and the festival of weeks, it'll be called the, the latter first fruits. And I remember reading that once, going, latter first fruits, that makes absolutely no sense at all. But here's the verses from Leviticus down in chapter, uh, chapter 23 still, down in verse 16 and 17. And this is talking about the festival of weeks. It says this, count off 50 days up to the day after the seventh Sabbath. And that's, so that's seven weeks plus one day, 50 days. And then present an offering of new grain to the Lord. From, whenever, from wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour baked with yeast, notice that, as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. And that was the part that used to confuse me all the time. That's a different first fruits in the festival of first fruits. So there's a lot going on here. But a couple things I think are worth pointing out they're they're pretty cool first of all why did God ask them to count off 50 days why not just give them a day and a month you know like the 14th day of Aviv or the 16th day of Aviv or, or whatever why didn't he do it I think it's because this method of identifying the festival of weeks or Pentecost attaches it to resurrection Sunday the festival of first fruits it's it's like this I have an older brother, <coughs> excuse me, and his name is Ed. What if when somebody asked my, me my birthday, I said, it's 50 days after my brother Ed. <laughs> what would that do? Every time I talked about my birthday, I'd be pointing to my brother's birthday. And I think that's what's going on here. Every time we talk about Pentecost, we're pointing to first fruits, which is Jesus. So I think for all eternity, the Pentecost is connected to Resurrection Sunday. How does this foreshadow Jesus? Well, we know from Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Spirit was given to all believers at the day of Pentecost, which is the exact day uh, that the Jewish folks were, were um, celebrating in a festival of weeks. It's the exact day. And we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus himself is the one who sends the Holy Spirit. So... We know this, too, because Jesus talked about this. Without Jesus, without his death and resurrection and ascension to heaven, there would be no Holy Spirit. And just like the Festival of Weeks is connected to the Festival of First Fruits, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is eternally attached to the resurrection 
of Jesus. And that is good news. And then we also notice there's a lot going on in, in, the, in the offerings here, but I want to highlight the fact that the, the bread has yeast in it or leaven. And that's in direct contrast, isn't it, to the festival of unleavened bread, talking about Jesus' sinlessness. This is bread with yeast or bread with sin. So it represents us, the church. Unfortunately, we have sin. And because we have sin, we need the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit, as our advocate and our helper, one of his major roles is to convict us of our sin. When you and I sin and there's this sense that that's wrong, that is the Holy Spirit telling you it's wrong. So these first four festivals, if you put them all together, they're all in the spring. And then there's a break all summer long. And why is that? Because they're farming. <laughs> they're farming hard, right? And then by the fall, these last three festivals are sometimes called the fall festivals. And they come in pretty rapid fire session in succession, just like the spring festivals did. So we're going to start out with festival number five, the festival of trumpets, which is in the fall. And you may have heard of Rosh Hashanah. That is the festival of trumpets, same day. Same day. And in our calendar, it's either September or October. And we haven't talked about calendars yet, but I think it might help you a little bit, especially if you have a calendar now that has modern Jewish holidays on it compared to the Christian holidays. Sometimes it gets confusing and won't really match up exactly with what I'm saying. And the reason for that is our modern calendar is called the Gregorian calendar. And it was created by Pope Gregory the, I don't know, there's so many of them. If you want to be a Catholic Pope, if your name's Gregory, you have a better odds. Um, so I can't remember which one it was. But in 1582, Pope Gregory established the Gregorian calendar. But the Hebrew calendar, it's different. It's a lunar calendar. And it starts each month when the thin crescent moon is first visible at sunset. Because remember, the days started at sunset. So those are how the months came. It's a very lunar-oriented system. And the festival of trumpets occurred on the first day of the seventh month. And because it's the seventh month, it's considered more holy and more sacred. And since it's the first day of the seventh month, it's especially holy, especially sacred. There's actually more sacrifices if you read through the Torah on that day. And this was a very solemn, somber festival. Now, obviously, on the festival of trumpets you're going to hear trumpets blowing, right? I mean, that's why it's named that. It's the festival of trumpets. And in the Bible, trumpets can mean a bunch of different things. They, they could mean a call to assembly. Let's, we're going to gather together, we'll blow some trumpets. It could mean a call to war. Or as here, it could just be a special announcement that this is announcing a special day or a special time in the future. So how does the festival of trumpets foreshadow Jesus? This one is more challenging, frankly, because of all the seven festivals, this one's actually written the least about in the Torah. It's just not mentioned very often. So we have to go look at the Talmud, which is the uh, writings of the rabbis out of the Jewish literature to get a little bit of help. And the rabbis refer to the festival of trumpets as the day of judgment. And all of a sudden, now we could start seeing, okay, this is where the connection is with Jesus. Because this festival reminds us that Jesus is the perfect judge. All will be judged, but good news for those who believe in Jesus, 
there is no condemnation. That's what Romans 8.1 says. Remember, we studied that not that long ago. Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that, my friends, is truly good news because if we weren't in Jesus, we would be judged and condemned. See, the Bible talks about this thing called the book of life. Uh, a little bit everywhere, but mostly in the book of Revelation. And what happens is when we believe in Jesus, when we put our faith in him, our names are written in the book of life. Jesus puts it this way. When we believe in him, we have crossed over from death to life. That's John 5.24. We've crossed over from death to life and we're no longer condemned. So that's the festival of trumpets. Kind of solemn, kind of somber because it's talking about judgment day. And then it's followed up by another solemn, somber festival, which is the sixth of the seven. And that's the day of atonement, the day of atonement. It's only 10 days after uh, Rosh Hashanah. And you may have heard it because of it, because it's called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is Hebrew for day of atonement. And it happens on the 10th day of the seventh month. And for the Israelites, it's a very, very holy, special day because this is the one day of the year that the priest would enter the temple and go in to the Holy of Holies. If he went in on any other day, he would die. One day a year, the priest was to go into the Holy of Holies. It represented the presence of God. It's a sacred place. It's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. And for the, the Jewish people... The purpose of the holy, this holy, most holy day was that you're offering a sacrifice for all the sins of all the Israelites. The purpose was to reconcile the nation of Israel with the one true God. So how does this day of atonement foreshadow Jesus? Well, for me, I think this one is pretty cool because I, I think God said, I really want them to get this one because this is really, really important. So I'm going to do a spectacular miracle. When Jesus died, he was on the cross, the veil that covered the Holy of Holies was torn in two. This is the account from Matthew chapter 27. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. So he died on the cross. At that moment is what the gospel writers say. At that very moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And I think it's very important that the gospel writers record that it was torn in two from top to bottom. Because we know from looking at the Torah, the dimensions of it. And I'll convert the cubits to feet for you. You're welcome. It's about 30 feet tall. I mean, that, there was nobody around in that day and age that was 30 feet tall. And besides, if you look at how it was made, it was very, very thick with multiple layers of thick fabric. The Hulk himself could not tear that thing in two from top to bottom. So who tore it in two? God did as a very vivid representation that now that Jesus died and was buried and rose again, there is no longer a need for the Holy of Holies. So it's done, it's finished. Now Jesus is our high priest. The book of Hebrews is the one that talks the most about this whole uh, idea of Jesus being the high priest and, and, 
and what happens with the, with the temple sacrifice. And I'm just going to read you one passage that I think is pretty clear. It says this about Jesus. Unlike the other high priests, which were doing their job and doing the right thing by going into the temple once, once a year and doing the sacrifices. Unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins, because he didn't have any sins, and then for the sins of the people. He, Jesus, sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. And then the book of Hebrew goes on to talk about it after this, Jesus ascended and sits at the right hand of God. So this summary of this whole day of atonement for us, how does it foreshadow Jesus? Jesus is our high priest. Because of the work of the cross, we don't have to go into the temple to be in the presence of God. We just have to wait a few weeks and the Holy Spirit comes and now we have the presence of God within us. And then later in the book of Revelation, some really cool stuff about heaven and the presence of God for another day. Okay, how are we doing? Great, Great. you guys okay? All right. That was six. Keep going. Okay, we got we to gotta keep going because we have seven. And the seventh one is the feast, uh, the feast festival, doesn't matter, different translation, festival of tabernacles. And this one really confused me when I was a young Christian because I was reading all these different translations as feast of tabernacles, well, feast of booze, feast of ingathering, all the same festival. It's just a whole bunch of different words for the same festival. And um, the, the, remember the last two festivals were kind of solemn and and somber. This one's a party. This one is like end of the year, end of the harvest, let's party. So we're going to get to end on a high note today, just like the Israelites got to end on a high note. And this festival was a whole week long. So there's two of the seven festivals that are week long, unleavened bread and this one, uh, the festival of tabernacles. It's a week long and all the other ones were just one day. And this one celebrates the fall harvest, which was olives and grapes and pomegranates and I think figs. Somebody correct me on that. It's not wrong. But the other thing we haven't mentioned is God so intertwined these festivals with their culture that each of the harvest festivals, um, on each of those harvest festivals, uh, Israelite males were required to take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So on unleavened bread, that's the, uh, the week where the barley was harvested. There's a, fest, a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And then for Pentecost, pilgrimage to Jerusalem. On this one, there's a pilgrim to Jerusalem. And the reason why that's important in the context of this story is Jerusalem's crowded. There's a lot of people there because they all came. And where are they going to stay? Well, they actually stayed in these temporary shelters. And that's the name tabernacles or booths. And when they were camping out for the week, the idea, you could read in the Torah, the idea of this festival is to remember God's faithfulness and protection. His faithfulness to provide a harvest. You know, this is the end of the year. It's like, wow, we get to live another year because we have food. And also the idea is to remember specifically the time when Israel wandered in the desert. You can read about it in the book of Numbers for 40 years before they entered the promised land. This festival commemorated that particular 40 years. Now, before we jump into how does this festival foreshadow Jesus, I think since we went so fast, it'll be good just to throw up another slide, hopefully, to kind of review what did the first six uh, celebrate. And here they are. Passover. What do we get from that? Jesus is our perfect sacrificial Passover 
lamb. Unleavened, unleavened bread, Jesus is the sinless bread of life. First fruits, Jesus rose from the dead. Weeks, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to us. Trumpets, Jesus is the perfect judge. Day of atonement, Jesus is the final sacrifice. And you could add, and high priest, but it wouldn't fit on the slide, sorry. <laughs> so we're going to move into this last festival and say, how does this one foreshadow Jesus? And I love this story, and it's a perfect way to end today, because Jesus himself took this festival to really teach us something and to teach not only his disciples, but the entire huge crowd that was there in Jerusalem for the week. Because two traditional things happened on the festival of Tabernacles. The first one was at the beginning of the festival, they, they erected three gigantic lampstands. And I'll, again, I'll do the math for you. They were 75 feet tall. A 75 foot tall lampstand, that's up there. That's like seven or eight story tall lampstand. I have no idea how it didn't blow over in the wind. And if it did, it would have been quite the fire because it, it stayed lit all week, day and night. And we know from, from Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, the, there was a prophecy about the servant, the Messiah, would be the light to the nation. So you could start see where this is going here. And during the festival for the Israelites, they looked at those lights as symbolic of God's glory and, and lighting up the nations. So it was while these three gigantic, enormous lampstands were lit up in the, in the, in the, in the temp, temple courtyard, Jesus says these famous, famous words. He says this, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You see, in, a, in kind of a good way, Jesus is almost like hijacking the festival. He's saying that these lampstands are cool, but they're going to eventually burn out. And they had to obviously replenish the fuel for those things day after day after day. So somebody had to climb up there and do that. But Jesus says, you know what? There's a time coming real soon where you don't need those lampstands. I am the light of the world. And the words that he speaks that will never walk in darkness, what a promise that is. Because we live in a world that has a dual kingship, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of light, and the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. So we live in a world that has plenty of darkness, and you know it, you see it, you feel it. But we don't have to walk in the darkness. We have a choice to follow Jesus and walk in the light. Well, the second thing that happens during that festival is another tradition that happens. And the priest uh, would take a pitcher of water, it was a golden pitcher of water, from the pool of Siloam and walk up to the Temple Mount. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that that's not just a casual stroll. It's a hilly city. The Pool of Siloam is at the bottom, and he walked up to the top. But remember I told you, this is a party. This is a celebration. There'd be a huge crowd of people following the priest as he did this. And they'd be playing instruments, probably flutes, and singing songs, probably Psalm 118. And it was a very festive time because we're celebrating the good news of the Lord. So uh, what would happen is the priest would go up to the top and he would take the water and he, and he would pour it out on the altar. And on the last day of the festival, tradition tells us that the same thing would happen, but he would walk around the altar seven times and pour out the water, uh, the water onto the altar. 
You see, there's several places in the Old Testament, in Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Joel, several places that talk about God pouring out his Holy Spirit. And that's what this ceremony is starting to symbolize. And it was on this last day of the festival that Jesus stood up on the giant steps of the temple, most likely, and says these famous words. And this is from John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. He says this, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. And by the way, in that country, let anyone who is thirsty, that's a rhetorical question. Uh, If you go to Israel that time of year, everybody's always thirsty all the time because it's a very, very arid place. And Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. So everybody come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from uh, within them. And then the, the writer of John's gospel says this, by this he meant the spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. And it seems to me that this is, this is the perfect way to end today, looking at these seven festivals together, this beautiful picture of our Lord and Savior Jesus, the Messiah who did all these wonderful things foreshadowed in these festivals. But the one I wanna focus as we go to a time of worship and communion is this. Ask ourselves, are we actually thirsty? Because we live in the Northwest where it rains all the time. It's easy for us not to be thirsty, but are we thirsty for Jesus? Do we believe in him? Have we received the Holy Spirit? This concept is so important in in the Bible and in the scriptures and the message uh, from God to us that the last two chapters of the book of the Bible, the last two chapters of Revelation, this theme of thirstiness and water comes up again. Right before we pray, I wanna just leave you this last quote from Revelation chapter one. One of Jesus' very last words, closing off the entire book of the Bible. He says this, it is done. I, Jesus, am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, that's us. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And if you want that today, join me because I want that today. This is for people who don't know Jesus, who haven't put their faith in him. You need to come for the first time to Jesus, believe in him and receive the living water. And if you've been a believer for a week, a month or 40 years like me, I need to daily come to Jesus and receive the living water. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you so much, Lord Jesus, for these festivals, these pictures of your wonderfulness and your goodness. Thank you for your work on the cross. Thank you for all the things that you've told us today, but particularly we thank you for your invitation that you give us living water. You give us the Holy Spirit, your presence in our life without cost. And for that, we say thank you, thank you, 